Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse, and I'm Eric, and today we're reading short and deep, "The Hidden Beast" by J.D. Beresford. Uh, I pulled this out of a book called Signs and Wonders, a 1921 collection of Beresford's stories. Um, mostly they are fantastic, I would say, is is the genre. <laughs> um, I, I can't rule out that this was published earlier. Um, it's very hard to track some of these very early uh, short stories in the UK. It may have been published in a newspaper or a um, or magazine, but I, I I can't find any evidence for that. So I'm I don't know if it matters that much. Uh, you know, if it's published in nineteen twenty one it gives us a little bit of context. But if it was published ten years earlier, um that would change things up a bit, I think. But the amazing thing about this story is I don't really know what's going on, but I think there are many things to point to, and <laughs> I hope you can point to some of them and see similar things that I'm guessing at. Um, but before you do that, <laughs> would you care to read it to us? Sure. I'd Thank love you. to. 1921, The Hidden Beast by J.D. Beresford. His house is the last in the village. Towards the forest, the houses become more and more scattered, reaching out to the wild of the wood as if they yearned to separate themselves from the swarm that clusters about the church and the inn. And his house has taken so long aside from the others that it is held to the village by no more than a slender thread of a long footpath. Yet the house is set with its face towards us and has an air of resolutely holding on to the safety of our common life, as if dismayed at its boldness in swimming so far, it had turned and desperately grasped the lifeline of that footpath. He lived alone, a strange man, surly and reticent. Some said that he had a sinister look, and on those rare occasions when he joined us at the inn, after sunset, he sat aside and spoke little. I was surprised when, as we came out of the inn one night, he took my arm and asked me if I would go home with him. The moon was at the full, and the black shadows of the dispersing crowd that lunged down the street seemed to gesticulate an alarm of weird dismay. The village was momentarily mad with the chatter of footsteps and the noise of laughter, and somewhere down towards the forest, a dog was baying. I wondered if I had not misunderstood him. As he watched my hesitation, his face pleaded with me, There are times when a man is glad of company, he said. We spoke little as we passed through the village towards the silences of his lonely house, but when we came to the footpath, he stopped and looked back. I live between two worlds, he said. The wild and... He paused before he rejected the obvious antithesis and concluded, The restrained... Are we so restrained, I asked, staring at the huddle of black and silver houses clinging to their refuge on the hill. He murmured something about a compact, 
and my thoughts turned to the symbol of the chalk white church tower that dominated the honeycomb of the village. The compact of public opinion, he said more boldly. My imagination lagged. I was thinking less of him than of the transfiguration of the scene before me. I did not remember ever to have studied it thus under the reflections of a full moon. An echo of his word, differently accented, drifted through my mind. I saw our life as being, in truth, compact, little, and limited. He took up his theme again when we had entered the house and were facing each other across the table in a room that looked out over the forest. The shutters were unfastened and the window open, and I could see how, on the farther shore of the wastelands, the light feebly ebbed and died against the black cliff of the wood. We have to choose between freedom and safety, he said. The individual is too wild and dangerous for the common life. He must make his agreement with the community, submit to become a member of the people's body. But I, he paused and laughed, I have taken the liberty of looking out of the back window. While he spoke, I had become aware of a sound that seemed to come from below the floor of the room in which we were sitting. And when he left, I fancied that I heard the response of a snuffling cry. He looked at me mockingly across the table. It's an echo from the jungle, he said. Some trick of reflected sound. I can always hear it in this room at night. I shivered and stood up. I prefer the safety of our common life, I told him. It may be that I have limited mind and I'm afraid, but I find my happiness in the joys of security and shelter. The wild terrifies me. A limited mind, he commented. Probably it is rather that you lack a fire in the blood. I was glad to leave him, and he, on his part, made no effort to detain me. It was not long after this visit of mine that the people first began to whisper about him in the village. At the beginning, they brought no charge against him, talking only of his strangeness and his separation from our common interests. But presently I heard a story of some fierce wild animal that he caged and tortured in the prison of his house. One said that he had heard it screaming in the night, and another that he had heard it beating against the door. And some argued that it was a threat to our safety, since the beast might escape and make its way into the village. And some that such brutality, even though it were a wild animal, could not be tolerated. But I wondered inwardly whether the affair were any business of ours, so long as he kept the beast to himself. I was a member of the council that year, and so took part in the voting when presently the case was laid before us. But no vote of mine would have helped him if I had dared to overcome my reluctance and speak in his favor. For whatever reservations may have been secretly withheld by the members of the council, they were unanimous in condemning him. We went, six of us, in full daylight to search his house. He received us with a laugh and told us that we might seek at our leisure. But though we sought high and low, peering and tapping, we found no evidence that any wild thing had ever been concealed there. And within a month of the day of our search, he left the village. I saw him alone once before he went, and he told me that he had chosen for the wild and freedom that he could no longer endure to be held to the village, even by the thread of the footpath. 
but he did not thank me for having allowed the search of his house to be conducted by daylight, although he knew that I, at least, was sure no echo of the forest could be heard in that little room of his, save in the transfigured hours between the dusk and dawn. Very nice. Thank you. Uh, I went in expecting it to be a werewolf story. (laughs) Yeah. I think it is a werewolf story, but it's probably the most philosophically deep werewolf story I've ever read. Um, And yet there's not a werewolf to actually be found anywhere in it. Uh, (laughs) Exactly. Um, And uh, in fact, there's no place names. There's no country. There's no sense of... I mean, the closest thing we get to a sense of specificity is that there's a white church. Mm. This almost could be in any land, in any world. Um, There's males. Uh, There's only males in the story. Uh, The other people on the council, the rumor mongers, are all male. But other than that, this story is, I think, deliberately lacking specificity. And I think that that's on purpose. I mean, one of the th- one of the things that struck me is he uses the word jungle, uh, mm-hmm. where earlier we had forest. Um, so it need not even be set anywhere in the UK. It could be set in South America. It could be set anywhere. And so... Uh, it's something, I mean, my mind went wild <laughs> in a certain <laughs> sense after reading this, trying to figure out what it means. Um, it is classified as a werewolf story by many anthologizers um, and people who comment on it, but they also don't go into trying to explain their theory. So mm. I want to hear what you have to think about it and what your, your initial thoughts on it were when you you were reading it, because... Uh, this might be as much designed to be an inkblot test as anything else. <laughs> I, I, I was thinking how even, for example, it relates to the present news. And we need not even mention what date we're recording up. But I think you can see um, what I mean. Because you I know can. the date. <laughs> right? Yes, I have it hidden under the floorboards of my house. Right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Uh, uh, let me ask, Jesse, you're a little better at this or more conscientious than I. Um, you said that one of the few things specified is that um, he is that all the characters are male. Mm-hmm. How do we know the narrator is male? I, I, I agree. We don't. The narrator is male, but I don't think that he is ever referred to as a he. I agree. He's he is not. The narrator's not referred to it that way, and neither is the the he of the house. Oh, well, the first line. Yes, it is, because the first line is his house is. Oh, yes. No, but we never get a name. So no, we never get a name. But There's but, no specific. And I agree that the narrator is male. It seems like. Um, yeah, but, but I don't think we actually have language. There's not a, a male pronoun ever applied to him. I agree. I think. So it, it's it's – a very uh, disembodied story. Uh, there are things going on here that are of their time. 
as you said. It would be a different story if it were written before or during the Great War. I mean, I think we would try to read it differently, mm -hmm. but we would be wrong. I think you're right that there is something that floats here timelessly. Uh, there are two books that I think of as sensibly compared with this or contrasted with this. One is Jekyll and Hyde, mm -hmm. which is, mm -hmm. I think, 1889. And one is Freud's Civilization and Its Discontents, 1929. So uh, Stevenson comes... 30 years before, uh, for, uh, a little over 30 years before this, and uh, Freud comes eight years after this. Stevenson argues that there is a duality in man. You know? And even though this is called the hidden beast, and Jekyll's counterpart is Hyde, um, I think that that Beresford is not actually arguing that there's a duality in man. I think he is arguing that there is a spectrum in man from a wild pole to a communal pole and that we are connected more or less. And that footpath, which gets mentioned twice in the beginning so that it'll stick in our minds and then recounted at the end, um, I think that footpath is supposed to let us know that people can fit in many different places along this spectrum, that we both have all within us. It's not as if one thing will take us over or the other. So this is it, it believes in the the fact that the wild is within us, as Stevenson does. But I don't think that it argues that it's either or. I think it's a spectrum and the spectrum can be shifted as the subject of this story shifts his attitude toward being part of the village and ultimately leaves. Um, with Freud, uh, one of the things that I th take away from civilization and its dis discontents is his assertion that civilization is no friend of man. It's really quite remarkable. But his point is that in order to live in civilization, we must have guilt. We must believe that there are things that we would want to do that to do would be wrong. And we must learn to feel bad about that so that we will not do them to begin with. Mm -hmm. um, I think that Freud is giving us a sense that comes after whatever Beresford was after, that Beresford got to it first, that he sees that people want different things in different ways, and sometimes they just try to stop them. So, yes, it's a werewolf story, but I would like to argue that the story really, this, this may <laughs> strike you as perverse on my part, the story is really about the narrator. Oh, yeah, definitely. It, 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 because... It's funny, we're told about this figure who lives on the edge of the village. He rarely comes into the community, um, never mentions that he's he attends the church. Um, it never hints that he was on the council, but we do know that he occasionally goes to the inn. And I just thought about that word um, as opposed to, like, the pub. Um mm. 
And the in and the out is one of the things I see, right? The the cluster, the swarm. And in fact, there's a, so many extended metaphors that weave their way from the beginning of the story to the end. There's the, the, the houses... Sw- uh, I'll just read that line again. Um, Towards the forest, the houses become more and more scattered, reaching out to the wild of the wood as, they, as if they yearned to separate themselves from the swarm that clusters about the church and the inn. So I see these two, there's two poles in the city about which the, the swarm of houses clusters, right? There's the, mm-hmm. the inn, which is the public house, Mm-hmm. The place people go in the evening after church, uh, after their daily business, and then there's the the church where they go on Sunday to be taught whatever is being taught in there, and then there's this third thing that's not necessarily in a particular building, it could be in either, um, and that's the council, mm-hmm. and eventually the council who that year our narrator says he or she is a part of. Um, eventually decides to act upon the rumors that are being spread about this wild person on the edge of the community who is, whose house is, is very personified here in a number of lines. Um, his house has taken so long a stride from the others that it is held to the village by no more than a slender thread of a long footpath. We're told he lives alone, but house can also mean family. It seems like everybody here in this village is male, so uh, maybe they're just ignored. We don't know. It doesn't really matter. I think it's designed to be that way. And yet it continues. Yet the house is set with its face towards us. And that sort of conspiratorially includes the reader. And has an air of resolutely holding on to the safety of our common life, as if dismayed at its boldness in, quote-unquote, swimming so far, it had turned and desperately grasped the lifeline of the footpath. And that is, yeah, that footpath comes up again at the end. Eventually, our, our hidden beast character flees the village, or at least leaves the village. Um, and, th- and then there's this other aspect to the story where the council, this uh, narrator who was on council that year... Um, he seems to have this it, I was thinking like is this is this about homosexuality? I'm like well, could be. There's no there's no uh reason to think it isn't. But there are there's almost no reason to think it, it isn't anything. Uh, any anything under the sun that's different or not it could be the drinking of coffee if it was a different religion, right? It it could be all sorts of things. And and then the narrator says these strange things about when he's on council, what it all means. So he says, I was a member of the council that year, and council's capitalized, and so took part in the voting when presently the case was laid before us. But no vote of mine would have helped him if I had dared to overcome my reluctance and speak in his favor. That is a really interesting line. That's why this story is about the narrator and not about this person on the edge of the community. For whatever reservations may have been secretly withheld by the members of the council, that includes the narrator and possibly everyone else, 
They were unanimous in condemning him. So because they go for it. Because they were, in fact, acting as part of the compact. Indeed. And this word, um, it, it's actually interesting because in different narrators who uh, read it, you have to be careful on that word because he even says in the story how to pronounce it. Um, he says uh, he says the word compact, and then, uh, but when he said that word, this is the narrator talking, when he said that word, my mind drifted to the other way of intoning it, which is compact. Mm-hmm. And it's really interesting. In Canada, the, the word compact has an extra meaning um, based on a little bit of history in the two founding nations of Canada, quote unquote. There's uh, Upper Canada and Lower Canada, basically Ontario and Quebec today. And Early on in uh, the 19th century, between 1810 and 1840, there was a term to refer to the people who ran the country, who determined what was moral, what was legal. And each of these two nations, uh, Upper and Lower Canada, had their own version of it. In what's Quebec, um, in Lower Canada, they called it the Chateau Clique. And the word clique or click has the same meaning today uh, as it did then. Chateau meaning house or no. uh, castle, perhaps. Castle, yeah. In either case, it's it's the house of the lords, right? The lord lord's house, as in the people who run things. And then in Upper Canada, it was called the family compact. And the compact was... Had, has, there's this second meaning of compact, and that, I think, is the one that is supposed to be used here at the beginning. It's the deal. Here's the deal. This is how things run. If you want to live in our community, you have to f- follow these rules. It's the deal you make when you choose to be a part of our community. And the whole cool thing about werewolves is they are not community members. They're always on the outside. And it's usually hidden, right? I, I, I think this story is so rich um, that I would rather not discuss the, the overall use of werewolves because I think I it is somewhat different from what you're saying. I, I don't want to divert our discussion of this story. Um, but yes, when werewolves are in their wolfish uh, guise, uh, their wolfish manifestation, they are outside of the compact, the pact that is common among people. Mm-hmm. Yes. And that word common comes up again and again as well. This, it's, it's so interesting. When he says, uh, when he takes him in by the arm and takes him to his home, and he says to the narrator, I live between two worlds, he says, the wild and, there's an ellipsis there, He paused before he rejected the obvious antithesis and concluded the restraint. Now, I don't know what the obvious antithesis, I can think of at least six or maybe more (laughs) obvious antithesis to the wild. Uh, One is tame. (laughs) Um, And that might be correct, but... 
the narrator knows what it is. And that's, again, why this story is about the narrator. The narrator is sort of acting as a proxy for our own thinking about how we are complicit, perhaps, this is my thinking, in condemning those as a, uh, uh, condemning as a part of a group, our willingness to shut down people's actions or follow along because it's almost like a mob mentality, except trying to understand it. The mob being the common good, the common belief. So uh, it's the richness of the story is that it's saying, here's a guy who thinks he should be thanked, right? That last stanza, stanza I'm calling it a stanza because it's so full of poetry. Mm. Um, I'll just read that again. But he did not thank me for having allowed the search of his house to be conducted by daylight, although he knew that I at least was sure no echo of the forest could be heard in that little room of his, save in the transfigured hours between the dusk and the dawn. Transfigured is a word that came up earlier at least twice as well. The transfiguration of the scene of the village by moonlight and it's almost it's almost like he's saying uh, actually i am gay i want to spend time with this guy but I, I i have a life and i have a wife and i have to deal with this and I, i'm not saying this is a story about homosexuality i'm just saying it's like that it could be used in that way i agree with this guy personally my politics are with him however i live in the community and i'm going to go along with the council and i'm going to vote against what i think is right because of some other interest this lack of fire in the blood. I think that uh, that what you say is correct. I would like to uh, add to it um, or d- reinforce your sense that the language here is poetic. That very first paragraph is just bursting with ideas that echo throughout the entire story. Uh, for example, he says that um, that the house, uh, where the houses, they uh, they swarm, right? Mm-hmm. They swarm that the 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 houses they separate themselves from the swarm that clusters about the church. He had his the uh, subject's house from the swarm that clusters about the church and the inn. Swarm is a word that recalls hives. Mm-hmm. Right, bees, wasps, so on. Uh, one of Beresford's most famous books, *The Riddle of the Tower*, is a dystopia in which we have a hive-like society. Mm. This is an idea that was rife at the time. It's in *The Machine Stops*, for example, in Kipling. Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea that we wipe out individuality by joining into the compact is crucial. When the narrator says, I was surprised when, as we came out of the inn one night, he took my arm and asked me if I would go home with him. That's a kind of language that I understand can make one think about sexual attraction. But I don't think that it's sexual at all. Mm -hmm. I'm surprised, too. And I kept wondering, why of all of the people did did the narrator, the subject, pick this fellow, the narrator, to go home with him? And I think that you've put your your finger on it when you said that this fellow wants to be able to think of himself as like the subject. Mm-hmm. The key word for me 
to show that, although it's throughout the whole story, is the first word of that last paragraph, that last one sentence paragraph that you read. But he did not thank me for having allowed the search of his house to be conducted by daylight, although he knew that I at least was sure no echo of the forest could be heard in that little room of his, save in the transfigured hours between the dusk and dawn. In other words, the narrator has saved the subject from being able to come under the grip of the compacting society. Mm-hmm. Right? He's, he has saved him. If he, And yet, why does he say but? He could have left that word but out. Mm-hmm. He could have just said he did not thank me. He could have said and. Why is it a but? It's because he expected something from the subject, mm-hmm. and the subject did not give it to him. He wanted the subject. He wanted the most wild of the people in his acquaintance to think of him as being like him. But once the subject decides that's it. I'm, I'm breaking the lifeline and going out completely. He no longer, the subject no longer acknowledges some fellowship with the narrator. Now, at the beginning when he says, the narrator says, I was surprised. I was too as a reader. But now I understand why the subject chose that man. Because that man, the narrator, is the one most like him in this swarming hive-like village. Mm-hmm. The but, word- not, but not close enough for the narrator to be able to feel satisfied that he has fire in his blood. Mm. God damn it, that subject was right. He didn't have enough fire in his blood, and so he resents the fact that he was not acknowledged as being also mm-hmm. free. That's why the word but is there. I agree. A story like this can resonate very powerfully, which is why there should, in fact, always be more to say. Thanks very much for listening. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash SFF audio.